Young, be seated. Good morning, good church family. What a blessing it is to be here with everyone this morning. Uh, some great news is happening in all kinds of different places in our church family. But as you guys grab your Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12, I just want to share something from Chile. Uh, last week, got some pictures from Marcelo and Matresa. They had five baptisms last Sunday uh, after services. So uh, praise God for that. What an amazing Amazing stuff happening down there, so we just continue to not only see what God's doing in our church family, but through and across the world, as Tim and Connor talked about, that when we commune, when we gather, when we gather in Jesus' name, we're not just gathering with people in our immediate vicinity here. There is, the Spirit of God is working all over the world, and we are, we are so grateful for that. So if you've lived any part of your life, you've been part of some famous breakups, right? Maybe even your own. Maybe in, you went to a small school and that breakup between you and your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend was a famous dramatic one that you had in high school. But if you've been around for a while, if you've been in the 70s and 80s and you were a child of the 90s, you've been a part of some pretty good breakups. Some of you are old enough to remember in 1970 that although they sang the song, We Can Work It Out, the Beatles decided that they could not work it out. And everybody was like, oh, no. Uh -huh. right? You guys don't get that joke. Yoko, oh, no. Oh, anyway. All right. She was the one that broke him up. Anyway, later on, of course, in that decade, Sonny and Cher found that they didn't have each other any longer, babe. Um, <laughs> in my lifetime, there was a boy band in college named NSYNC who later on decided that they would take on their own uh, careers, and they said bye, bye, bye <laughs> to each other. Only to be found out this last week that they have actually come back together. The name of their new tour is We Need Money. Um, uh, it came back around. Of course, you see that every once in a while. I found this one out, the Hall and Oates, the 80s duo. Any 80s? Hall and Oates fans out there, right? I found out that they are fighting so much with each other. This I learned last week, that one of them, I can't remember, Hall or Oates, has put out a restraining order on the other. So one of them is trying to haul Oates in some direction. I don't know. Anyway, enough with the puns. All right. Breakups, divisions can be not only a little bit innocuous like those things. But they can also be violent and dramatic. They can be things that hurt others. Long ago, the king of England, remember this famous king, Henry VIII, because he could not and was not allowed by the Church of England to divorce, or the, the church, to divorce his wife, he decided instead to break it off by charging her with treason and having her beheaded. So breakups can be tough. Most of us in here of a certain age can remember a breakup that probably at the time of your life was devastating, but now as you look back on it, you are thankful that it happened. Amen. Right? Many of us. But today we're going to talk about not a breakup that anybody was happy about, and not a breakup that really had no meaning to 
people's lives other than pop culture. But a breakup that was serious. It's a breakup that affected thousands, possibly even millions. And it was a breakup that continued, never to be restored. Three generations before our reading today in 1 Kings, we learned of the story of Samuel. It's a story in which the people come and they say, we want a king. And by the time we get to our story today, the people of Israel have started to see the extent of that desire. They got a first king whose name was Saul, and he was the penultimate in kingship. Tall, mighty, powerful, anything and anything, any, any, anything that anyone would want in a leader. But he was so self-absorbed. His rule didn't last long because his attitude and his heart gave way to a true king, David, a shepherd boy who was special, who became the template for kingship, one after God's own heart. But David's son, as we saw last week, Solomon, after taking over the throne and starting out so well, showed the full extent of the ability of power to corrupt. Solomon taxed, he oppressed, he put people in slavery, and then he ultimately put up shrines to other gods and worshipped them. At the end of his life, we pick up the story here in chapter 11, where the Lord says to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant, And my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. The subordinate here that the Lord is talking about is who you read mostly about this week if you read chapter 14. It's Jeroboam. Jeroboam, not Solomon's son. Jeroboam, the rival to Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Jeroboam was an official in Solomon's court one of those in charge of the labor force of the 12 tribes. He is told in the text that he will reign. He will get a piece of the kingdom. It's not long, though, before Solomon finds out about this prophecy and plans on killing Jeroboam in order to retain his kingship. Jeroboam escapes. He flees to Egypt in fear for his life. And while in Egypt, Jeroboam hears news that Solomon, the king, has passed away. His son now, Rehoboam, is chosen to take the throne, not Jeroboam. Now, I want us to know that this can be confusing. For a long time, especially in my childhood, I assumed, because I didn't pay attention to the details, that Jeroboam and Rehoboam were twin brothers. Anybody else with me? (laughs) Or at least cousins, right? But they're not. That's why it's confusing. They're like two friends that Alice and I had in our campus ministry at OSU. They were actually brothers. The older one's name was Roberto, and the younger's name was Robert. Or was it Robert and Roberto? I cannot remember. It was so confusing even to today. that We have two names such and so similar, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But you need to hold them in tension because they are not brothers. They are adversaries. They are rivals. In fact... Through the modern miracle of AI, I found a very rare photo of them so we can get to know Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Here's what they look like. (laughs) Not really through AI. 
But this is their story. As you will see, these two rulers is a story that's going to begin with drama, but through their arrogance and through their inability to listen to good counsel, their story will spiral. It'll spiral from drama into revenge, and then it's going to end in disaster. Let's pick it up in chapter 12. We hear this, 12, 1 through 4. Rehoboam went from Shechem, for all of Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned to Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel. So he and the authorities from the north, other leaders from the north. So you gotta, we'll look at a map here in a minute, but you got to have this picture. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, has assumed the throne. Jeroboam, who had this high authority in the cabinet of Solomon, comes back from Egypt, his life no longer in danger, but he's joined by people in the north to say, we got to go make things right for our people. And here's what happens. He and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam, and they said to him, they plead with him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy... uh, And the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Jeroboam, come home from Egypt. He's been told in this prophecy that he would be a king, but now finding out that Rehoboam is in Shechem, and he's been ratified as the king, he arrives. And Jeroboam, it seems, doesn't come ready to start a fight. But he comes with his brothers and his fellow backers from the north, And at first glance, and I think rightfully so, he gives some pretty good advice. He's like, Rehoboam, if you want this to work out, maybe even said, this thing's only been together for two generations. we got to make sure and stay united. Then lay off the oppression. Seek the good of the people. Now, this seems, if you haven't read ahead, like this is an easy choice, right? He's getting, hey, if you want people to follow you, Rehoboam, man, all people will serve you. If you'll just back off the tax, the slavery, the building projects. So here's what Rehoboam does as we continue the story. Rehoboam answered, go away from me for three days and then come back. So he takes some time. So the people went away. Then Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, these elders, these wise men, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Your favor, your favorability rating will be high your entire reign. He's got this choice. How are we going to treat the people in the north? And Rehoboam has received at this point great counsel in this three-day period, 72 hours. If you will be a servant, all people, they will come and be with you. They will have your back. But then we continue to read. Verses 8 through 11. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders that they gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice, bros? 
I want him to say. How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Rehoboam given two pieces of advice. Two. This breaks down into all proverbial wisdom in the Bible, right? From the book of Proverbs. If you go this way, it'll work out. This, this pre-conventional wisdom that you get in, in Proverbs. And if you don't, it's going to go bad. Just two, two choices. One's good and one's wise. One is not so wise and not so good. And as we hear in the text, Rehoboam's like, I'm going with my high school buddies. They're still wearing their letter jackets. We still look cool together. <laughs> I'm going to go with those guys. And because of his advice, what you know in the text is that the ten northern tribes revolt. And then they choose their own king. And now there are two nations. Never again to be fully united. Let's pause for just a second here and just remind ourselves that we are the sum total of our choices, aren't we? And I'm reminded of that in my own life. I try to say that to myself. I try to say that to others that I'm in relationship with. I believe that little choices often are even more important than big choices because they add up. But sometimes in our lives, right? Rarely, but yet almost assuredly, there will be times when big choices, one choice, will either make us or break us. And here... Given the choice between making a nation and breaking a nation, Rehoboam chooses the foolish, selfish, awful choice. He divides it. Judah in the south, along with Benjamin, ten tribes in the north. And as a result of this, God's promise, God's guarantee that Jeroboam would be a king to... Ten of the tribes comes true. Jeroboam then assumes the role of leader and king in the north and Rehoboam in the south. What will Jeroboam now do? Let's see if he can be a wise and discerning king. Let's pick it up in chapter 12, 26 to 30. As we look at both these men, we've seen Rehoboam's foolish choice. Now let's look at Jeroboam. Jeroboam now has these ten tribes and he thought to himself. The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. Who's that? That's Rehoboam, right? He's David's grandson. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And then they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice... Now, we don't have the insight to what this actually sounded like we do with, when we do, like we do with Rehoboam. But after seeking advice, Jeroboam, the king, made two golden calves. Don't mince, miss this hyperlink in the text. He said to the people, 
It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, which is the exact same thing Aaron said when he made one golden calf. One he set up in Bethel, the house of God, and the other in Dan. And this thing, and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Now you see why the picture I showed you is true. Harry and Lloyd, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam makes decisions that we'll talk about here in just a moment. But the decision that he does is he goes ahead and he remakes the commands of God. For the reasons we'll talk about in a moment. But what he's doing is he's worrying about losing power. So he doubles down on the sin of Aaron and makes not one golden calf, but two. One in the north in Dan and the other in the south in Bethel. The irony of that, if you know your text, is so heavy. Bethel was the place where Jacob put up an Ebenezer and said, this is the house of God. And now there's a golden calf there. But what we see in the text and where we're going to focus our attention after kind of getting our heads around these two characters is this. Is we see two men who become two kings who make two common mistakes and have two common threads among them. And the first common thread is that they refuse to listen to godly counsel. Both Rehoboam and Jeroboam seek counsel. Rehoboam seeks it from the elders and from his friends. Jeroboam looks for advice on what to do. He's worried that the people, every year, they're going to make several pilgrimages down to Jerusalem. How can I keep Israel united if they're always leaving? So he looks for advice about what to do on worship and losing people in his church. But both of them fail. They fail to listen to wise and godly advice. Some of us today, just statistically, probably are just one choice away from ruining our lives. One moment, one decision away from disaster. I, I believe in grace when that happens. I believe in forgiveness when that happens. But what about this? What if we could look at Jeroboam and Rehoboam today And say, what if we could prevent that choice altogether? When I go to this text, I'm always thinking, what if Rehoboam would have just listened to the elders instead of his high school buddies? What if Jeroboam would have gotten godly counsel and not been worried about keeping the people in his land? And I think about what would happen if I would seek counsel before I typed or texted or made that choice or spent time over there or kept scrolling? What if we learned to stop before we make potentially dangerous decisions and sought out other godly people? What gets me is The best we can tell, there's all this wisdom about them and around them. 
Wisdom that was very popular at the time of Solomon. Wisdom that said, if you can see it on the screen, Proverbs 1, let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. It's the, the verb is go find it, right? 12.15, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen. Right? They listen to advice. 1920, listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end, you'll be counted among the wise. 1522, plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. There's this incredible action verbs, right? In all that. And the truth is that what we've got to learn from this is there is a place... Even in our hyper-individualized world, there is a great place that we need to recapture of seeking godly counsel. Not only when we have tough choices, just when we're living day-to-day life. Because we have to admit, right? I hope I can get some amens out of you, at least a head nod or a murmur on this, because I need to amen my own statement here. Let's admit it. Most of the time, when left to ourselves... You're going to do whatever benefits yourself the most. Amen? I mean, it's pretty predictable, right? If I'm not asking anyone else what I should do, I'm going to do whatever makes me feel good and look good. And that's exactly what Rehoboam and Jeroboam did. The Proverbs here told them to get, to listen, to take, to accept, to seek good discipline, Wisdom, advice, and counsel. And I'm amazed at the fact that they didn't. But I'm also amazed that we don't either. I don't know if it's just me, but I'm finding an irony as I get older. I used to think and believe that as I got older, the more I would seek out godly counsel because I would be getting wiser. That is not true in my life. Anybody else with me? It seems that the older I get, the more self-assured I get instead of the more humble I get. And I'm picking on myself because I am feeling like by picking on myself, I can pick on you a little bit too. Is that okay? There's an irony there. Rehoboam and Jeremiah made the common mistake of getting good advice but not taking it, not being humble enough to listen. So I want to ask a question this morning. How do we become people who don't repeat the sins and the faults of these two leaders? And I think the question we all have to ask is simply, do you have someone in your life that can tell you the plain truth? Because they have nothing to lose. Do you have somebody in your life who can tell you the plain truth because they know and you know that they've got your back and you have theirs no matter what? Because that's what every one of us need, right? We need people in our lives that are more concerned with our relationship with Jesus than they are with their relationship with you. That's what we need. We need people in our lives that are more concerned about your growth in your connection with God than they are about your growth and connection with getting your way. And I love that this church family has that 
We need people who can be honest about the areas in our life that we need growth. We need people who can pray over us and love us and coach us and come alongside us and help us even when what they say hurts. Love always asks difficult questions. And love always keeps people on a journey together. Could it be true that most of the problems we have in church today is a direct result of disconnection and lack of relational and spiritual accountability? Probably. You know why churches gossip about each other? Because they're too afraid to talk to each other. You know why they're afraid to talk to each other? Because we don't listen to godly counsel. You see that? I'm fat because I eat, and I eat because I'm fat. It's a vicious cycle. We don't listen to, we don't listen to godly advice because I don't want it. It's a vicious cycle. Sorry, that just jumped in my head. But it's true. Big sins, little sins, however you want to define it, however we kind of rate those in our heads, even though we all know all sin separates us from God, but abuse, affairs, addiction, gossip, greed, and even violence are the result of people living without good, godly counsel. May we be a church that learns to share in wisdom and fellowship together. You know, we have small groups not because we want people to do something on Sunday afternoons. We're not here to be your activity directors. We have small groups because we know that in those relationships, when you give yourself to them, guess what happens? You find godly friendships. You have accountability. You have people that have your back. It's helping each other see more of Jesus. But there's one more thread. It's a little bit negative, but it's common thread number two. Not only do they reject counsel, but the common thread that led Rehoboam and Jeroboam was their ego. And they make decisions based here on ego. What qualifies you, Jake, to talk about ego? I got a problem with it. So here's what ego is. Want a good definition? I'm not going to go Freudian here. <laughs> he was wrong about most things, I guess. Ego is this. Ego is the part of yourself that wants always to be significant, central, and important. Rehoboam, let's test Rehoboam on this. Rehoboam wants to be significant apart from who? His dad. You thought my dad's taxation was bad. <laughs> I'm going to bring it down. You thought he whipped you. I'm gonna go. I don't know what that scorpion whip looked like, but I don't want to see one, right? He was doubling up. Solomon's shadow loomed large. He taxed heavy. Rehoboam's going to tax heavier, more powerful, more successful. How many of us make ego decisions based on, well, somebody was like this. I got to do it even better, greater, more. Not for the benefit of others, but for the benefit of ourselves. Again, ego is the part of ourselves that always wants to be significant, central, and important. Jeroboam makes an ego decision based on, I don't want people to go worship at another church. I don't want them going down to Jerusalem. So his ego says, well, just create your own system. 
more golden calves, double up. People used to love the golden calf in Exodus, <laughs> Jeroboam. And he's like, well, I'll just make two. <laughs> that's ego, you see that? Oh, that's crazy. Make it work out. See, ego is self-protective by nature. It works to eliminate anything negative about the self. So let's all take an ego test. Uh, if everybody will get ready to raise their hand. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to make you do that. But I want you to think about this. Ego is the part of ourself that allows us to do wrong without ever recognizing that it is wrong. It's the part that says, I can't believe so-and-so does that while at the same time you're doing the same thing. So here's our little ego test. Have you ever told a story about yourself and purposely emphasized one part while leaving out other parts of the story to make yourself the hero of the story? (laughs) You don't have to raise your hand. Second question on the ego. Have you ever made a decision based solely on how you would be perceived, not on how things should go? How many times a day do you worry about what people think or what they'll say? I got news for you. This is how twisted the ego is. We often think, well, that's me just being concerned, or I'm shy, so I'm really worried about, or I'm really humble, so I'm really worried about what people think. (laughs) Nope. That is the ego. I'm not judgmental. I just really worry about what other people think about me. You're judgmental. (laughs) See how twisted that is, right? It's ego. Have you ever spent money? Here's our couple more questions. You guys doing okay with it, by the way? Okay. Have you ever spent money on yourself knowing that there was somebody else that needed it? Well, I didn't know money had anything to do with the ego, Jake. (laughs) Right? Why? Because when I make myself important, what I need over somebody else's need is always more important. And then finally, which we've already hinted around, Last ego question is, have you ever found yourself feeling superior to someone else? See, that's all the ego, and that's what Jesus calls the actor in Matthew 23. Now, he doesn't ever use the word ego. He uses the word hypocrites, hypocrite. But you can see the, the connection between what we know as ego and acting on a stage. Hypocrite wasn't a terrible term in the first century. Jesus is probably the first person to ever use it in a negative connotation. He just said, you're going to church, Pharisees, and you're making yourself look religious, but you're just an actor. You're using your ego. See, the ego is what gets us to act. It gets us to fake. It gets us to judge. And what's interesting in the teachings of Jesus and why I think this is so important to call about out in Rehoboam and Jeroboam is that ego is what Jesus criticizes in other people more than anything else. You ever notice that in the Gospels, Jesus does get upset with sin, but he really only gets upset with those who pretend they're not sinners? Those who are willing to admit they're sinful, Jesus is like, come on, right? The water is fine, (laughs) right? But it's those that act with ego. 
So let's bring this all to a close. Rehoboam and Jeroboam are two men, two kings with two common threads. They seek terrible counsel, choose terrible counsel, and then they lead with their ego. Now, back in your Bibles in 12, verse 7, I believe it is, there's this incredible little phrase that I think is the point of the whole text. I want to turn this theologically as we end, end up. I think the text has given us something in 12, 7, where the, where the uh, people are giving, the elders of Judah are telling Rehoboam, if you will be a servant, the people will be a servant. And I think that's the key to this whole text. Is he's getting this advice that is so important for all of us because that is the advice Jesus has given every one of us, right? I came not to serve, Jesus says. I came not to be served, but to serve. I almost got that backwards. That would have been bad. That's heresy, Jake. I came not to be served, but to serve. And then what's Paul say in Philippians 2? Let your attitude be like that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? But made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, right? It's all about service. And here's how we'll wrap this up. When I am not king, I believe Rehoboam and Jeroboam's story is telling us what we need to take out of here today is when I am not king, then the kingdom has the best chance of breaking through. Y'all with me on that? When I am not king, the kingdom has the best chance of breaking through. See, we live in a king culture. What I mean by that is a culture that wants to make you or make you believe that you've got this little kingdom, and they're all very little tiny things, but we think they're pretty big, right? They're like these little pedestals. I wish I had a little pedestal up here. It's like this. Look, I'm a king, you know? (laughs) That wants us to believe that we are in charge, we are in control, that we are the masters of our domain, that we are doing the things that all are benefiting others. Look at me, I'm here at church. I am a king, right? Uh, We believe that. But over and over in Scripture, the message is, and there was a message to Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they weren't king. God was and is and always will. So when I take the pedestal position and I say, my kingdom come, my will be done. I am blocking off any move of God. I am creating a wall between the will of God and my life. I'm creating a barrier between the transformation that the Holy Spirit wants to do in me. And I'm not just hurting me. Don't believe the lie that your relationship with God only has to do with you. Your relationship with God has to do with everybody in this room. Because how you let God transform you often can help impact how God transforms somebody else. Amen, church? And if you want evidence of that, just look around. 
Man, the things I'm seeing in other people's growth in their life from my life group inspires me. The words of wisdom I hear after Brandon Whitson has thought through something and he says something at the end of a class, I'm like, wow, right? Brad's incredible ability to philosophize for like 20 minutes and then get to a point. (laughs) I love it, right? I love the text, the connections, the heart of servants like we have in this church, like Jeff Dockery, who will do whatever. That wants me, that makes me want to be more like Jesus. Not my own self. When I am king, nothing gets done in the name of Jesus. But when we're not king, the kingdom has the best chance of breaking through. So our invitation this morning is this. You've heard the saying, hurt people, hurt people. It's true, right? But it's also true that transformed people transform people. In fact, when we're willing and able to let God transform us, then it always brings other people along. And it's true that we only can lead people as far as we ourselves are willing to go. Don't like where the church is headed? Get in the presence of God. Don't like what your brothers and sisters are doing? Get in the presence of God. And then bring them along with you. Because transformed people transform people. Let's stop acting and trying to save face in our own little kingdoms and our own little stages. Let's be honest. Let's seek godly counsel. Let's lay down our ego at the cross and cast our cares upon Jesus. Let's stand together and let's sing. I said